Hello, this is Ben Eshmade and welcome to this King's Place podcast. On the 17th of December, prog popster The Anchoress, aka Catherine AD, comes to King's Place to celebrate the vinyl release of her debut album, Confessions of a Romance Novelist, with a special one-off live show. Released in January 2016, the album has received heavy rotation on Six Music, Hype Machine and Apple Music video charts. The Observer has called it a rich and complex debut, and it's garnered praise from rock superstar Peter Gabriel, amongst others. Catherine joined me to explain the eventful path to the album's release. Anchoress is a construction. I think she's many things. I think she allows me to kind of write the songs I want to without people assuming it's autobiographical. I guess it's just an artistic conceit that allows me to get away with whatever I want, really. You never considered using your own name? I mean, when I first started making music and I was doing demos and I sort of self-released some demos through rough trade shops and things like that, I, I was kind of using my own name. But I think for me, it just felt really uncomfortable. Like, any time anyone would review anything, it would, it would feel like quite a personal affront in a way. But then the title of the record is sort of a riff on that. It's kind of a joke about that, how we assume that female artists operate in that confessional singer-songwriter genre and kind of being quite playful with that, really. Halfway done, I, I knew it was going to be the anchoress, right. and, and Catherine was dead. OK, so I think there's quite a complicated story be, behind the album. I mean, it, it, it was a long journey from the conceiving to the finally, I presume, getting the CD in your hand. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I guess you kind of say it took my whole life. I think everyone takes their whole life to make their first debut album. But um, yeah, there were lots of really awful things, funny things and terrible things that happened in the making of the record. I guess life got in the, in the way a lot, but I think the most important thing is I got there in the end and it, and it came out. But it had time to kind of germinate, marinate, ruminate, procrastinate. There was a lot of procrastination that went on. <laughs> it, it wasn't as if it sort of took four years to make the album. It just happened over a period of time. And I think I needed to evolve as a, a songwriter, as an engineer, as a producer in that time too. So in the end, it was worth the time it took. And I think it would, wouldn't be such a good album if it hadn't. I've read in interviews before that you talk about, you know, you, you wanted to make music from an early age. I always wanted to be a dancer. So music was always a big part of my life. And I always played music and I that was obviously goes hand in hand with I was training to be a classical ballerina and that's what was my huge passion but obviously alongside it I was I learned to play the flute I played in orchestras I sang in choirs and, and did all that kind of thing picked up a guitar started writing songs but it wasn't really until the option of being a dancer was no longer possible for me after I had my accident it was always very much a quiet secret endeavor of mine I was a bit embarrassed about sort of admitting that I was doing it to anyone first song? This was an interesting question. I do, actually. It was on my first EP. It was called Ripe. 
And it, it made it onto the EP, so it can't have been that bad. But, uh, you know, have you any idea how many songs you've written over the years? In, in the hundreds, I presume? It is probably in the hundreds. I think for me, I kind of look at songwriting as the more you do it, the better that you get. But I'm somebody that thinks that you just have to keep doing it. Um, it's, I think it's the same with kind of writing poetry and having obviously studied a lot about poetry. I think I take yeah. a lot of my methodologies and kind of techniques from that kind of discipline to the idea that you just keep get, keep at it. It's a mm. daily discipline. So yeah, hundreds. I'm imagining verses and lyrics are something that just as much time as the songwriting. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, lyrics are really important, which has been quite interesting, actually, most recently. Um, since I finished the album last summer, I've been writing with and for Paul Draper's solo album and writing with someone else mm. who doesn't necessarily have the same feelings about lyrics that you do is quite interesting because he's not really that focused on lyrics. For me, they're just as crucial as the music, as mm. crucial as the top line. So that's, I never really thought about it before I worked with somebody else, how, how important it was to me. There's lots of descriptions and people had their own in regards to how to describe your music. The thing I wanted to say, which I, I, I took from it, was intelligent pop music. I, th I think it's pop music because of the hooks, because of the that, that idea, maybe we've lost that a little bit in pop music, of, of listening. Yeah, I think, I'm trying to think of another band that kind of does that, maybe like Scritti Polissi yeah. or something like that, where you can have sort of quite complex ideas within this, this kind of very forthright pop genre to a certain extent but I think pop's become a kind of dirty word mm. and, it, and it shouldn't be if I'm if I'm trying to write pop music it's because I'm trying to write the best songs I can yeah. so they might be accidentally pop but obviously because the record it germinated over such a long period of time as well the, maybe the more pop songs came to the fore because they felt like the stronger compositions as well mm. if it's difficult for me to describe my music it's because I'm I want to be free to go where I want to with this next record. So if there's pop on the record and there's kind of gothic Celtic tones and there's yeah, yeah. dark rock and there's piano ballads, that's because I want to do all of those things and I don't want to be pinned down to one sort of sound or one type of music. Not popular, no, 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 no. And my mother says it's because I'm jealous, so I fix myself some big, big dreams, big, big schemes. Let's talk more about the sort of the themes and the ideas. I mean, did you start getting an idea of what the album was about when you started to cut down the songs and get a sort of running order? Yeah, I mean, when I first started recording with Paul, the idea was I had about 100 songs that I'd just written on my own and he kind of sifted through them. We made a shortlist of what we felt was going to be on the album. I think we recorded about 15 of those. We started recording. And then as the process kind of went on and we, we wrote some songs together and they kind of made it into the pile too. The, the shape of the album changed and so some of those older songs got kicked off. Um, some of those older songs might make it onto the second record though. Mm. But I think that the themes and preoccupations that I have are the ones that I have in my life in general. And I think there's a certain extent of, there's echoes of the themes and interests of my PhD about identity, queer identities, performative mm. identities that leaked into the record. That idea of trying on different characters and different voices. I think I said it to somebody else, in a way the album's just one massive exercise in misdirection. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, there's the line in Confessions, the end track says, you know, you don't know me. The idea that I'm kind of constantly shape-shifting throughout the record. And the, the title of it, of the album itself, you know, Confessions of a Romance, and obviously the idea of the fictionalising the confessional, you know, what is autobiographical, what is false. And what's it like when you get on, on stage? Do you become some of these characters? I wish I did. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. I th think I do try and become the anchoress. I think any performer that gets on stage, you kind of have to arm yourself a little bit to do it. It's quite 
nerve-wracking, I think, especially when you're at the helm of it all, when you're... We did a run of summer shows and I very much had to kind of take my time before we went on stage to sort of put the wedding dress on, get the anchoress headdress on, <laughs> get into that kind of frame of mind of becoming her. It's been a long day and I got reason to fear Gonna be lonely Yeah, it's been I wanted to ask about objectifying because when you're on stage people are staring at you and though I know some performers take power from that you know as well I think there is something empowering about performing on stage and I guess it's something I think about a lot what's the difference between being a female mm. musician performing on stage and how differently you might be objectified to a male corollary of that and I guess I don't have any other experience than being I don't think that to be objectified necessarily has to mean mm. to be belittled. You, you can draw power from that, I think, yeah. if you draw on it in the right way, mm. especially if you are slightly distanced from the character that you are on stage as well. I think that helps. But, you know, I've seen you perform live. You, 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 it's, it's something that you seem to really, really, really enjoy. I, I mean, is, is it's <laughs> like, I'm glad it comes across like that. I don't know. I've actually been suffering with quite bad stage fright this year for the first time in my life, which is really difficult, actually, and probably sounds like a really odd time for it to have developed. I probably shouldn't tell people this, but I think being honest is important. Um, it, it seems odd that I was so comfortable with performing music when I started because I'd grown up dancing and I didn't have stage fright, I just didn't get it. Um, I spent the last sort of 18 months touring with Simple Minds and playing to like, you know, 10, 15,000 people a night. Fine, no problems. And then I came off that and came back to doing my own music and started doing the Anchorest live shows. And I just suddenly found that I had really quite severe stage fright. Mm. I'm still working out where that's come from mm. and why that would be because you think logic would dictate, you've got that experience of playing in front of big audiences. And all I can put it down to is that it's more terrifying playing to a small audience than it is to a large one. I think after a few songs, I can kind of slip into mm. a, a more comfortable place, but um, I think it's important that more performers talk about the anxiety that they have when they're performing. And you're incredibly fortunate because you've worked with Manic Street Preachers uh, and uh, Simple Minds mm -hmm. and, and Bernard Butler. So, I mean, these are some of the greatest indie heroes of, uh, of recent, recent you know, decades. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a real compliment to be asked to work with anyone. And mm. getting on stage with the Manics and performing Little Baby Nothing was pretty much my life highlight. I still can't actually believe that happened. <laughs> I have to keep reminding myself if I'm having a bad day that that happened. And yeah. if you'd have told me when I was like 13 that that would happen, I would be screaming for about three days straight. Do you know yet who will be joining you at King's Place? The King's Place show is going to be a strings and piano show. So it's going to be something a little bit different to what we've done over the summer. Yeah, I don't like repeat. I like to make more work for myself and I never like to repeat myself. And it's the release of the album on vinyl, uh, sort of the uh, vinyl release. It is, yeah. Basically what's happened is um, the album's come out as a double vinyl with four new acoustic tracks. And then it's also been released as an expanded two CD edition with five new acoustic tracks that's coming out in Europe as well. And I, I think that's partly what inspired the idea for the King's Place show was the acoustic versions of the songs that mm. I completely rewrote as well. Again, I don't like to make my life easy. <laughs> so we completely re-recorded and rearranged the tracks for strings and piano. When you fall in the gutter, I won't shed a tear Cause you've had it coming for years 
And will you be at the stage of any new songs? I, I think I'm going to play one or two new things. I mean, I'm already two songs into recording the new album, and then there's also the album that I've made with Bernard Butler as well, so we might do one one from there as well. And, and do you think uh, the, the Anchoress will change as a character, going to go back to maybe where, where we started? I think that the second album, as it's evolving at the moment, I know where it is thematically, and it's very much darker, and I know where it is darker. aesthetically. <laughs> yeah, it is darker, but it's darker sonically too. Um, I think it will be more of a dark rock record. Thanks to Catherine for speaking to me. You'll have heard tracks from the special edition of her album, Confessions of a Romance Novelist. The Anchoress plays in King's Places Hall 1 on Saturday the 17th of December at 8pm. I'm Ben Eshmade and you've been listening to a King's Place podcast. For more details about this event, please visit kingsplace.co.uk forward slash Anchoress. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at King's Place and Facebook forward slash King's Place. Thanks for listening.